Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast. This is the show where each week we bring you conversations from the library's public programs that explore the work and ideas of authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded live in front of an audience. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. This week, we're talking the doctor-patient relationship with doctor, teacher, and author Danielle Ofri, whose new book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, asks the question, can refocusing conversations between doctors and their patients lead to better health? Dr. Ofri, who practices at Bellevue, lectures at NYU, and is the editor of the Bellevue Literary Review, spoke with WNYC's Mary Harris. Mary is the host of the fantastic podcast, Only Human, each episode of which explores how we can make the most of our health. No matter what high-tech gadgetry might infatuate modern medicine, Dr. Ofri contends that the single most powerful diagnostic tool remains the doctor-patient conversation, which can uncover the lion's share of illnesses. But often, she says, the difference between what patients say and what doctors hear is vast. Dr. Ofri and Mary Harris dissected some of the problems in these communications and talked a lot about solutions for both doctors and patients. It's a helpful conversation for literally everybody, unless you're someone who never plans to go to a doctor. Daniel Ofri's book is again, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. It's available for sale wherever you buy books. And more importantly, it's available at the New York Public Library, where you can get it in hard copy and electronic version through our app, Simply E. So let's get to it. Here's Dr. Danielle Ofri in conversation with Mary Harris. So my name is Mary Harris. I host a podcast called Only Human, which is from WNYC. And I'm really thrilled to be here with Danielle today to talk a little bit about her book, I'm going to start off by telling you a little bit about me, because you'll understand then why the book resonated with me so much. So I've covered health and medicine for a couple decades now, um, but I didn't really think about my relationship with my doctor and what that was all about until I got sick a few years ago. And when I got sick, I got like really sick. Like I got cancer at 35 and then I found out I was pregnant at the same time and it was really crazy. Um, but, okay, spoiler alert, first of all, I have a three-year-old. She's fine mm. every, and I'm, I'm healthy. But um, it completely shifted the dynamics between me and my doctor. We were all kind of humbled by what we were going through. And I hadn't even realized to that point just how constrained I was in my relationship with my physician. Um, so when I went, read Danielle's book, it really struck a chord with me. And it's all about that relationship, how it works, how it does it, and how you can have a better relationship um, without all the crazy drama that I went through. So I want to welcome Danielle, tell you a little bit about her. She's an associate professor at NYU. She has written four books before this, um, and she's a really wonderful author. You may have read some of her work at the New York Times, the Well blog. Mostly, though, she is brutally honest about being a physician and what that entails, and it's what makes her writing so amazing. So I just want to welcome Danielle. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for braving the would-be blizzard, which thankfully held off till, um, till tonight so we can all get home in time. But it's really a pleasure to be here. As I was saying before, I, I love being in libraries. My daughter, who's now turning 16, when she first learned to read, said, I wish I could live in a library. Then I could just wake up and all the books would be around. So, I, of course, she wouldn't be seen in public with me now, so I couldn't get her to come tonight. But it's, it's nice to be with, <laughs> with books all around. <laughs> so I want to start off by just having you explain a little bit about what you do, because you work as a physician at, at yeah. Bellevue. So what is your clinic like? What is your day-to-day -day like? Sure. So I'm a general internist, which is a regular doctor for, for adults. And I had a clinic this morning. So a typical day is I have regular scheduled patients some of whom I've had for 20 years, some of whom I meet today, and they come with all the regular adult issues, hypertension and, and, and obesity and depression and heart disease and diabetes. Um, you know, today I had a healthy guy who just, you know, wanted to get a checkup and his main issue was constipation. I had an off-the-boat immigrant from Egypt with um, newly metastatic breast cancer, and she only spoke Arabic and didn't have an interpreter with her, and newly diagnosed diabetes. Um, I have people who are seeking asylum in this country. I have um, patients from all walks of life. 
And so what's nice as an internist is I get to um, do lots of medicine without fancy tools. And I love fancy tools, <laughs> but I really enjoy being able to do most of my medicine without them in the conversation that we have and the physical exam. And then is there a way to make the person feel better by the end of the visit? So why did you want to take on this issue of doctor-patient communication? Well, it's always intrigued me um, because I, I think that patients almost uniformly are frustrated by the communication in the exam room. They'll come out and say, you know, my doctor doesn't hear me. I couldn't remember what to say. I forgot what they told me. It never comes up people saying, oh, I love talking with my doctor. I've never, ever heard anyone say that. And how I got to th this book is I was writing my last book um, called What Doctors Feel, How Emotions Affect the Practice of Medicine. And I was interested in how doctors and patients for one chapter of the book become friends. And so I was looking on the web and I found a blog by a doctor who spoke a little bit about her and her patient becoming friends. And I spoke to her and she related to me um, a patient. She had a young woman with a very complicated diagnosed illness that went on for a long time. And they really clashed over the treatment. And the patient wanted to push the envelope to the most extreme treatments. And the doctor was worried about toxicity and harm. And they really had trouble communicating. And then as I'm reading this doctor's blog some more in the, in the weeks that ensue, I see comments on the blog that I think might be that patient, even though I didn't know the name. And I asked the doctor, asked the patient, who said, I'd love to talk to you. And I spoke to the patient. And I got two completely different stories. And it was like, if you have a, imagine a movie scene and two cameras with just different angles on it, or at times it felt like two different movies altogether. And it wasn't as though one was right and one was wrong. And both were thoughtful, intelligent, self-critical, self-reflecting people, and yet they saw things so differently. What were the main differences? Well, um, I think part of the really main difference was what the driving force was, that for the patient who felt that um, she, her life was at stake, that's how she saw it, she, she was willing to do whatever it took, and she wanted to push the envelope. And the doctor felt the first do no harm, that anything that does harm, I have to think carefully about. And the patient described it as being in a rowboat and each rowing in the opposite direction. Huh. You know, I feel like we've all been there with mm -hmm. the doctor where we kind of want to push it and the doctor doesn't. Um, and I feel like I always get frustrated because I think like, mm -hmm. well, I'm willing to push it yeah. and it's my body. Right. You know, what is that resistance? Well, I have patients who will come and ask for things that seem unrealistic, like, you know, um, if someone, you know, someone can come and say, well, I, I think I should get a heart transplant, huh. right? And you say, well, that's crazy because your, your heart isn't failing. But, you know, if you say, well, it's my body, this is what I want to do, they're like, is that indicated a heart transplant? And that's obviously extreme. But pa patients will come and say, oh, I heard about this medication on, the, on TV and it's supposed to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And so I really want to get it. But I think that, you know, in my medical opinion, it's not right for you. But they say, but I want to try it. You know, should I prescribe a medication I think is wrong even just because the patient wants, like where, where does the patient autonomy, you know, versus physician advice, you know, where do you draw that line? You know, you, I said that yeah. you were brutally honest mm -hmm. and you start this book with a story about a man from your own practice. You mm -hmm. call him, um, sure. Amadou, Amadou? Diallo Amadou. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to, I want you to talk about that a little bit because you tell this story I don't know how you were able to tell it about yourself, you know, because it says so much about you as a person and him as a person and, and the dynamic. So if you could tell sure, it. Yeah. So, so Mr. Amadou was a 43-year-old immigrant from West Africa who, um, you know, I met him a few months before I wrote the piece, and he was always calling me. He always needed something, a prescription, an appointment. He needed a, a form filled. He always needed it now. Um, and I think in the three weeks I knew him or the three months, I... I fielded maybe 50 or 75 calls from him. Now, he had a very bad heart. Young guy with a bad heart. And on the first visit, he brings in this tome of papers from a cardiologist in Pittsburgh. And he had um, a defibrillator. And he had an ablation and a cath. And he had a congestive heart failure and a lot of stays in the ICU. So he definitely was sick. But he was so irritating. And he always, like, wanted an appointment. So I'm. the story opens with he calls me. It's like it's 7 o'clock on a Thursday. He needs to see me right now. I'm like, well, is it, you know, anything urgent? And I can't get that sense. You should go to the emergency room. Or if not, just make an appointment. I need to see you right now. So I tell him, listen, I'm not here tomorrow on a Friday, but come to the urgent care just so someone can see you. And so I come in on Monday. And of course, he doesn't show. He leaves me a message. You weren't there. I come to see you. You're not there. I'm like, 
I told you I wouldn't be there, but I want you to see, you know, uh, one of my colleagues. And so for the next week, we exchange messages back and forth. They keep saying, I need to see you. And I, and I keep saying, if it's urgent, go to urgent care. If not, make an appointment like everyone else. Like a week later, he shows up in clinic without an appointment, like the fifth time he's done that. And I wasn't prepared for the rush of anger that overcame me. How could he just sort of walk in and expect that I'll drop everything, I have nothing else to do, and I'll see him right, right there? And I was so angry at him. And I said, you know, it's, you have to make an appointment like everyone else. You can't just march in and make an appointment. He's like, but I need to see you, Dr. Ofri. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, my next appointment is a month off. And I'm like, all right, just this once. And he smiles broadly. And I'm like, shoot, I am going to regret this. And he comes in, and then he's like halfway in the door, and it's like he freezes in mid-footfall. It's, it's like he's, his muscles are deciding, should they go forward, should they go back? And then he collapses with this heart-stopping thud right there. And i like trying to get a pulse. Okay, are you okay? Are you okay? He's like, oh, my heart. And I'm like, oh, I'm swamped with guilt. I can't get a pulse. His, his, you know, his, um, his blood pressure is bottomed out. And so I get oxygen. I get him on the stretcher, and I'm rushing to the emergency room thinking, oh, I'm so guilty. Like, I've been fighting with him, and in fact, something really was wrong. Um, and so that's how kind of I opened the story and thinking, you know, were we just not communicating? Hmm. Like for him, he's, he wants to see me. That's what he wants. And I'm thinking this is a demanding patient, and he really just is, is taking advantage. And so we're not quite seeing eye to eye. Yeah, it's like I feel like we've all been mm. that patient right. where we know mm. that we're annoying the doctor and they kind of have to pick, put up with us, um, but we really need them. Right. And what I love about your book is that you sort of take us away from the individuals and talk more about the dynamic between people and how they can really actually even influence the outcome of the relationship. You talk about... Um, the doctor and the patient co-creating the meaning of the experience. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this study that you write about that showed exactly how that works. So, so what's interesting, if you look at the, um, as, as I delved into the research on communication, so it really starts from the field of public speaking with a group of frustrated English teachers who were unhappy with how well their students communicate, and they began to write about communication. And the reigning idea was that Someone at the front spoke, and I, the speaker would pack the information in a little basket and send it on a zip line to you in the back row, and you'd unpack it, and that's the, you get the story. But in fact, that's not really how it works, because that puts all the emphasis, the burden on the speaker. So if you in the back didn't get what I was saying, it's because I wasn't thoughtful enough, or intelligent enough, or loud enough, I didn't gesticulate enough. But So this researcher from um, British Columbia came with the idea that the listener... The person who's listening, say in the case of doctor-patient, the, the doctor, helps create the story. And she did a great experiment where she took these college volunteers, and one person had to tell a dramatic life story, you know, a near miss, they almost got hit by a car, almost fell off a cliff, and the other person had to listen. So some of the listeners were told, while your partner's speaking, in your head, calculate the number of holidays between now and Christmas, like no school days, it was February. So while the person's telling the story, they're thinking, okay, Labor Day, uh, Memorial Day, Groundhog Day. <laughs> so as you can imagine, they were terrible listeners, right? They were completely tuned out. And so these listeners didn't give any sort of a hunt, no nods, no generic signs as someone's speaking. And they also gave no signs of specific listening. They didn't, you know, say, oh, at the right moment. They were clearly tuned out. And as you can imagine, it really befuddled the speakers. The second group of listeners were told to press a button every time the speaker used a word starting with the letter T. So these folks had to listen very carefully to catch all those T words. Now, it's interesting. So those listeners were able to nod and say, uh-huh, in the right spots. But they also couldn't give any specific responses because they were listening hard, but they weren't really hearing the story. And as the speaker spoke with these distracted listeners, their story fell apart. It hmm. faltered. And you, and you know what these are like. These are people who are like, you know, looking at their phones while you talk, or they're thinking about whether the cafeteria still has minestrone soup or that football game last night. And so you start to like double back, and the story eventually fell apart. The most interesting part is that the, the ones who, who made it the hardest were those T word counters. The holiday counters, they look tuned down. I think the speakers gave up. But the T word counters were tricky because they looked engaged, but they really weren't. 
And I think that a lot of times as the patient telling the story, your doctor may look engaged, but is in fact thinking about 16 other things, the EMR, the computer's freezing, there's a phone message beeping, and I'm really hungry, I haven't had a drink of water in a while. And so they may not actually be hearing what you're saying. So a good listener helps the speaker create a good story. They help co-narrate the story. Well, so how do you use that in your practice now? Like, do you put away that medical record? Do you meditate? Like, what do you do now? <laughs> Valium? No. <laughs> um, you know, so, so I think, so, so think about the doctor visit today, right? You walk into a doctor's office and they've got the computer screen, they've got the EMR queued up, and they're busy typing away. I mean, it looks like the 1950s secretarial pool. That's what I think. We're all hunched over typing away. Um, and partly is there's no way around this. And the EMR has grown into this big octopus of a thing. And if you don't write while it's going on, you're just not going to get it all down. But the, the patient has trouble sort of telling the story. So what I've tried to do now is to, for the first minute or two, not write a thing. Just look at the patient, full frontal eye contact. And a minute may not sound like a lot, but if you've ever been listened to for a solid minute with nothing distracting, it really helps create that connection. And then I'll say something like, you know, I don't want to miss what you're saying. Do you mind if I write while you speak so I can catch it? So then I'll try to acknowledge the, you know, the necessary evil. We all know the computer has to be there. Um, but then remember to say we're done. Is there anything that I missed? Is there anything else? To let the, the person know that I've been listening. And then if we forgot something, here's the phone number to leave me a message. Or, you know, here's how to contact me because we, we can meet again. But it's not easy because the EMR does get in the way a lot. When you do talk about these little experiments you tried in your practice as you were writing this. And I'm wondering if you can talk about sure. that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so one, one thing, so the patient comes and the doctor says, you know, what can I do for you today? And the patient gives the chief complaint, right? The, that's what we call it. The first thing, of course, we call it a complaint, right? We're already putting it in a negative light. But we ask them what you're here for. And the patient begins to talk. And how soon do you think it takes for the doctor to cut off the patient? Between eight and 10 seconds, Right. <gasps> Eight so, and ten seconds. I have this pain. Oh, when did it start? How long does it last? What brings it on? What takes it away? You know, we don't even let them, like, exhale. So God <laughs> forbid, the second thing they were going to say was the really important. We'll never get to that. So we jump right in. And not because we're trying to be rude. I think we don't intend that. But we have this sort of detective dog, you know, instinct to get right on it and get down the questions, get the information, get it down, find out what's going on. And, of course, we may direct the conversation in one direction, which could be completely wrong. Um, so I, I wondered, like, how long would a patient talk if you didn't say a thing? And so I asked my colleagues, they're like, oh, 10 minutes, 20, an hour, oh, the Italians, they'd never stop, you know, they always have something. I'm like, okay, so I, I tried to find, I found, in fact, one study, a, a group of Swiss researchers, researchers actually did that. And the average time the patient spoke was about 90 seconds, like, not this tsunami that we expect. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try that here. So... Um, I try it the next mo very next morning. I set the top stopwatch each time a patient starts to talk. And How was, hard was this for you? It was hard. <laughs> you did not say a thing except anything else, anything else. The first patient's like 65 seconds, you know, huh. but it had a healthy patient. The next patient with a little bit of, you know, blood pressure rising up, glucose rising up, it was like, you know, a minute and a half, you know, and most of them were two or three minutes. But then came Miss Garza, which is not her real name. And this is the patient with the million and one complaints. And I thought, oh, God, here it comes. So I'm oh, going to so you saw her coming and you were like, oh. oh my God. So I'm going to read you just a, um, a two pages from, from Ms. Ms. Garza. Yeah. But then came the kicker, Josefina Garza. A teacher in her native Argentina, Ms. Garza was saddled with a vast array of insoluble pains, compounded by anxiety, depression, and irritable bowel syndrome, plus a demanding mother to care for, exactly the kind of patient who can drown you with their list of complaints. I love her droll observations about New York City's pretensions of culture, which of course could never measure up to the sophistication and elegance of Buenos Aires. But if I let her talk uninterrupted, this visit would unfurl like a Borges labyrinth. I'd hear a dizzying list of symptoms from every organ in her body, a rundown of her mother's medical ills, plus a stinging critique of the Metropolitan Opera's recent production of Turendo. I wouldn't be able to provide any easy solutions for her symptoms, and I'd be forced into explaining the decisions of her mother's doctors, as well as the artistic director of the Met, who routinely desiccates Puccini. <laughs> Both of us would be in a sour mood by the end, and the whole thing would turn out to be a sprawling, onerous mess worthy of an atonal Schoenberg opera, which Ms. Garza, of course, would excoriate on philosophical grounds. 
But I'd promised myself I'd let every single patient talk today. If I eliminated the difficult, quote, patients from my evaluation, then my data, however informal, would be flawed. I girded myself for battle and asked Ms. Garza, how can I help you today? And I reluctantly clicked on the stopwatch. Every single thing hurts, she said, from my toes to my head. There were shooting pains in her gums. Her scalp was painfully sensitive. Neck pain was radiating down her spine. Her mother had insomnia and was up at all hours of the night complaining. Each time she paused, I asked gamely, anything else? And there always was. I'm only 45, she said, but I feel like I'm 85. Every step hurts, and my head feels like I've swollen to five times its size. It's like I'm walking through molasses. I scribbled a few notes on paper she talked, but maintained eye contact with her the entire time. Let's get everything on the table, I said bracingly, and then every last symptom, and then we'll, um, we'll, uh, we'll figure out where to go from there. I let her keep talking until she'd fully, truly, absolutely come to the end of all she had to say. In the dip of silence that followed, I reached over to click off the stopwatch. I estimated 10 minutes, 15 minutes. In fact, it read 4 minutes and 7 seconds. And the Met had come out unscathed. I suppressed the urge to jump up and say, wow. <laughs> Instead, I turned back to Miss Garza and said, is this everything? She nodded, and I showed her the list I'd been jotting down. When viewed on the page, it actually didn't seem so overwhelming. It was long, but it was finite. Miss Garza had already had the million-dollar workup, which was all negative. I explained to her that she had something going on. Medicine is very poor at explaining pain syndromes, I said, but that doesn't mean we can't go ahead and start treating the symptoms. We went down the list together, trying to define which pains could be helped with ice packs, which may be with local heat and massage, which with physical therapy, which with medications. We talked about how antidepressants could be helpful, seeing a therapist could decrease her stress. We discussed about how she might get help in caring for her elderly mother. Uh, Then we wrote up a plan. At the end of the visit, which didn't run over time by too much, she said something that I'd read about, but never heard a patient legitimately say. Just talking about this, she said, has actually made me feel better. I wanted to jump up and sing an aria, which luckily of all parties involved, I refrained from. But I was in the process of realizing something else. Just talking it all out had made me feel better. Hmm. Have, have your patients ever read your books and come to you and talk to you about them? <laughs> you know, I would say most of my patients don't know that I write. A few, a few have. Um, but I think, you know, a patient like Ms. Garza, I think any doctor honest enough to admit it, say we hate patients like that. Not that we hate them, but, you know, we got that little 10 or 15 minute window and, and, you know, these patients give you all these things that you can't solve. And I think we quote, hate it because we can't make it better. And, and patients like this, I think are used to having walls erected around them because we jump in and want to turn off the spigot as expeditiously as possible, right? Cause there'll be something else that we can't solve is going to pop out. And so the frustration builds up. And so these patients always have another thing and another thing. And I think by getting it all out, sort of once and for all, I think for Ms. Garza, her anxiety level probably went down because she doesn't have the fear that, oh, I'll never get a chance to say what I have to say. And maybe there was a biochemical explanation. Maybe her cortisol level went down or her endorphin levels went up. Um, or maybe just letting her know that, that she wasn't going to get boxed off made her feel better. And, and I think for me, who always you know, gets overwhelmed by patients like this, the list, was, the list didn't go on forever. And that's, I think, my fear is that it'll go on forever. But in fact, it doesn't. You know what I love, though, is that like you talk about mm-hmm. the vulnerability and fear and the patient. But then you also just kind of alluded to the vulnerability and fear in the doctor, too. Like, maybe mm-hmm. I can't treat this person. Right. And how that's kind of at the root of this whole miscommunication. Yeah, I think we, we want to quickly give a solution because not just we think the patient expected, but we expect it. We're supposed to solve the problem. And that's what we do. We were talking earlier before, if you brought your car to the mechanic, would you expect them to spend 15 minutes and solve the problem no matter what the problem is? But we do that in medicine. And so in our little 15 minutes, we're supposed to figure it all out and and solve all all the problems. And of course, that's unrealistic. And, um, you know, it gets to our own, your own emotions. I think everyone has the imposter syndrome feeling, even doctors. So here's this patient who comes in and I can't help them. What an idiot I am. You know, I may as well just be a witch doctor if I'm going to be prescribing, you know, amulets um, to to help them. (laughs) Um, Okay, can I ask the audience something? I just wonder how many of you here have gone to a doctor and just thought, like, this will never work and just walked away, like never gone back. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever tell the doctor 
that you, yes, you do? Okay, we have one person nodding, two people nodding. Okay, I, I haven't. But um, I wanted to ask that because you tell this other story about this doctor-patient pair where they really almost gave up on each other. And then they stuck it out, and it actually it worked, but it was because they... They stuck in there, and it really gets to the value, I think, of investing in this relationship, which I don't think we're necessarily trained to do. So there, it was Tracy yeah, and, and Dr. David, David Barron. Yeah. So this is a, a doctor-patient pair in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Tracy, um, and they consented to have their real names be used, uh, was a middle school teacher, to which I, I have middle school kids, so I genuflect anyone who <laughs> teaches middle school and survives to tell the tale. Um, who, um, healthy, busy person involved in politics, involved in teaching and dancing in her church and, and very, very civically involved. And she just began to feel lousier and lousier and lousier. And turns out she had diabetes undiagnosed. And so she ended up with, with Dr. Barron. She picked him out because she could pronounce his name in, in the book and, and, and the other one she couldn't pronounce. These are, I think, ways that we all end up picking doctors. And and he was a very caring guy. He worked in this progressive uh, Cambridge Health Alliance um, and they had a difficult time from the beginning. And, and, and I think in, in talking to them both, you know, for Tracy, diabetes was important, but it was only one of the things that she you know, had going on. For Dr. Barron, it was the most important thing because he really wanted to help her get under control because if she didn't, she faced a lifetime of possible terrible outcomes, you know, stroke and blindness and amputation and dialysis, I mean, really horrible things. And she just was having trouble getting under control. And whenever she came in, she kind of felt guilty because he would, you know, comment on her what she's eating and her weight, all the things that are relevant but were sensitive topics. And she said, I'd go in there for back pain and would come around to diabetes and what you're eating. And, and finally she started to avoid the clinic. And then she just began to sort of, you know, sneak away. And, and he kept thinking, boy, how can I try harder? And he would call her again. And, and she's like, oh, my God, he's so overbearing. He's like, I'm really trying to be committed and be there and, you know, make the extra effort. And they really weren't seeing things eye to eye. And at one point, Tracy finally left the clinic for about a year. She just couldn't deal with it. She ended up getting extremely sick and she ended up um, coming to the ER, ending up in the ICU with diabetic ketoacidosis, a DKA, a very serious complication of diabetes, quite rare in type two, usually type one, but to the point where you're, you know, you're in the ICU getting fluids and, and, and uh, almost comatose. And so they, they, you know, got a chance to talk again. They sort of had this big tension between them and they what they finally did, you know, they, they talked about it and they kind of got back together, but they ended up um, doing a public, um, exactly this, two-person <laughs> conversation in front of their colleagues and family and friends, talking about their relationship. Um, and I think it was the first time I've ever seen a doctor and patient talk about their relationship. And they talked openly about how it was sort of difficult to to connect. They really were had different priorities. And ultimately... David helps her get involved in these diabetic group visits where she had sort of a team of professionals that then took the one-on-one -on -one tension off of them and they were able to, to, to reconcile. You know, I think in psychoanalysis, we analyze the doctor-patient relationship, but not any place else in medicine do we ever sort of talk about how doctors and patients communicate. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other interesting thing is you talk about the conversation as kind of a tool, the same way a blood test would be a tool or an MRI, but then you do something else, which you, you talk about how the words can actually treat people. And you alluded to it a little bit before, um, especially when it comes to pain. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things I, I've concluded after writing this book is that the doctor-patient conversation is the single most powerful diagnostic tool. I mean, it blows out of the water. MRIs, CAT scans, PET scans, all the things we do, because the patient's story is the primary data. So, so the one part of the book is really about giving that it's due for, for diagnosis and understanding disease. But I've also learned that, that um, there are treatment benefits for pain. And there's a couple of studies. And I'll, the landmark one that really set off was back in 1964, looking at 100 patients going for abdominal surgery. If you've ever had surgery, you know that post-op pain is the worst thing in the world. <clears throat> and we use narcotics to treat it. And of course, narcotics have myriad side effects, ranging from nausea, vomiting, constipation, to respiratory arrest, addiction, and death. So decreasing the use of, of opiates, narcotics, is a, is a high priority. So the night before surgery, the anesthetist goes to each patient and talks to them about the surgery. But in half the patients randomly selected, they gave a 20-minute extra conversation discussion about post-op pain. What it's like, what causes it, the tensing of the muscles, how to 
relax the muscles to relieve the pain, when to expect the pain, how long it would probably last. Um, if you didn't get re uh, relief from relaxation, how to call the nurse and what meds you would get and what they would do. That's it. Next day, surgeon operated, didn't know which patients had the conversation, took care of the patients. Now, from the 21st century viewpoint, it's obvious that those patients had, you know, um, better pain relief. But the magnitude is impressive. They used 50% less narcotics than the other patients, just by 20 minutes of talking. And they were discharged from the hospital three days earlier. Hmm. Three days earlier, that's, that's, I mean, that's probably $20,000 right there, plus all the other hospital-acquired infections and UTIs and, and ulcers that you get from just being in the hospital, all from a 20-minute conversation. And so words can really do something. They didn't do anything else differently other than talk to them about pain. And whether that was they relieve their anxiety, help them have good expectations, help them have control over the pain, who knows, but it really worked. Hmm. Would you mind reading the, about the howler, sure. the patient you call the howler? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> this is a story from um, my time doing residency, and I trained at Bellevue too, um, kind of what's known as the Bellevue lifer. There's a few of us around. Um, and when I trained in, in the um, early 90s and late 80s was the height of the AIDS epidemic in New York. And certainly Bellevue Hospital was ground zero. And those were very, very difficult times. I mean, those of you who remember the, those times, and, and for us in training, you know, we're taking care of patients who are our age, you know, dying very, very hor horrible deaths. So it was always a busy and, and somewhat dreary time. So this takes place on the 17 West AIDS Ward at Bellevue, which of course is closed because it's no longer an inpatient disease. It was well past midnight on the AIDS ward at Bellevue. Despite the late hour, the nurses and doctors were still rushing about at full speed as the admissions continued to surge in, each more feverish and emaciated than the previous. But even the AIDS ward eventually quieted down for the night, except, that is, for the howler. The howler was a patient in his 30s who had earned his nickname for his nightly bouts of wailing. He was already getting hefty doses of pain meds, yet he kept screaming to the nurses about his pain. This went on night after night, despite extensive medical evaluations to see if there were any missed explanations for his pain. Nothing seemed to help, and the nightly yowling was agitating the other patients, not to mention driving the nursing staff to distraction. You know, the doctors, we have patients all over the hospital, so we got to move around, but the nurses are tethered to the wards. They could hmm. not escape the howler. The head nurse sat patiently at 3 o'clock in the morning. You have got to do something, she said, before somebody strangles them, and it could be me. Reluctantly, I trudged into the patient's room. I'd been on my feet for more hours than I could count. This was my fourth visit to the howler that night. By this point, we were both pretty exasperated with each other. He was sullen and cranky. I was exhausted and at my wit's end. I watched the patient writhing in bed and felt bad for him, but his moans burrowed into my brain, deflating my last three functioning neurons. I rummaged around in my pockets to see what I could come up with and pulled out a vial of saline. On a whim... I plucked a syringe from another pocket and slowly peeled, peeled back the wrapper. Stepping in closer to the patient's bedside, I cocked back the syringe and drew up one cc of plain saline. You know about Tylenol, right? I said to the patient, who was continuing to twist within his bed sheets. And you've heard about Tylenol number three, the kind with codeine? I leaned forward and held up the liquid-filled syringe close to the patient's face. There's even a Tylenol number four. I slowly removed the cover off the needle and it glistened in the fluorescent lights. But this, and here I pause for dramatic effect, this is Tylenol number five. The patient stopped yowling and gave me an interested look. Without a word, he lowered his pajamas and allowed me to inject the saline into his gluteus maximus. I disposed of the syringe in the nearby Sharps box and pulled up a chair to his bedside. The patient and I waited together, allowing the minutes to tick unhurriedly by. After what seemed like a mutually agreeable time, I stood up and bid him good night. The patient put his head to the pillow and promptly fell asleep. The ward was silent for the rest of the night. I did feel guilty that I'd committed an outright deception, something I knew was a true no-no. On the other hand, it was the first time he got a full night of sleep to say nothing of the other patients and on the ward and the rest of the nursing staff. And the head nurse, by the way, was my best friend after that. She <laughs> bought me a bagel the next morning. We were buddies for the next three years. So this was a while ago. What made you think that would work? Or were you just so frustrated? I was at my wits end. like, what do I got in my pockets? And like, oh, saline. Let's just, I had no plan, completely improvising, which is a lot of what residency is. But it was, I had nothing else. I've been in this guy's room, you know, a million times already. We've given him everything. 
you know, nothing is going to help this guy. You know, what the heck? Well, so you're a physician. I mean, what do you make of all this? There's this really active area of research into placebo studies right now. So uh, how, how does it change what you do and what do you think about it? Well, it's funny. I had a great conversation after this with Ted Kapchuk, a fascinating fellow who runs the placebo studies at Harvard. And he's like, yeah, everyone has the line, usually around midnight or so where they, they cross over. And of course, a deception is outright, is not okay. But in his perspective, even open-label placebo can work. And he did a great experiment with a bunch of patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And he gave them a placebo and said, this is nothing. This is a sugar pill. There's nothing in it. But research shows that people have decreased pain in placebo. And I'll be darned, a third of the patients felt better. Is that unethical? I mean, I have patients that I don't care if it's dill pickle. If it gets my pain better, you know, I want it. So I definitely look at placebo differently. I think in the setting of research, we think placebo, of course, that's ethically correct. But in clinical practice, is it a little bit shady to give placebo? But I feel like if it's not substituting for another important medication and the patient's not getting relief otherwise, you know, why not? And where it comes up with me a lot is the lowly multivitamin. Patients always come up to me and say, well, I get more energy if I take a multivitamin. And in the past, I always said, no, that's ridiculous. You know, there's no studies for that. A multivitamin doesn't do anything if you eat a balanced diet. But now I respond differently. I'll say something like, you know, lots of my patients say they have more energy when they take a multivitamin. And I'm not lying because lots of my patients do say that. And you know what? A good chunk of patients come back in the next visit. I feel so much better. Oh, that's so funny. have I been unethical or have I been ethical in helping them? If I'm not substituting this for their antibiotic or antihypertensive, if it makes them feel better, isn't that part of what we're supposed to do as doctors? Huh. I love that. Um, I just wonder if doctors need to think about their role differently. Like, do you think what you're saying is something that doctors are being taught in medical school? You know, I think we're slowly coming to it now. I think traditionally, not at all. I mean, that was the, the least thing. You just, you know, learn the medicine and you go figure it out. And we all, we all did and you'll figure it out too. But I think we're starting to realize that that's not good enough. And I look at these medical students and think, they're going to be my doctors, you know? So I really have a personal vested interest in making them a little bit better. And also today, you don't need to memorize the 15 kinds of vasculitis because you can look it up faster than you can remember. And that's the computer has a better memory than I do, no doubt. Hmm. So let's focus on the skills of how to use that. You know, the difference between sort of getting knowledge and getting wisdom. And I really would like our upcoming doctors to work more on the wisdom side of things because knowledge, it's kind of the easy part and even easier th these days. And, and so, um, but how do we teach in medical school? We give a PowerPoint. We give a multiple choice test and, and you know, a one to five Likert scale of how to rate, the, which is impossible to teach communication. You can only really do it by taking students, you know, to the bedside and showing them how do you talk with a patient who's angry or difficult or wants to leave against medical advice or is demanding pain meds or is, you know, wants to sue or, or is unhappy with their care. And working with that in real life, that's how, those are lessons that you can, can learn. And I think you, but that's very t labor intensive, right? To have, to teach these things in small groups and one-on-one. -on -one. But I think that's what it takes to help people understand the value of communication. And the other thing that students, I think, also can't see is the value of long-term communication, that I have a patient who I've had since I was an intern, and I wouldn't, huh. even, I wouldn't not carbon date myself to tell you how long ago that was, but he's still with me. And at this point, I know. If he walks in and he's not well, I know it right away. And that part of communication, you, you can't teach in, in, in a lecture, and you have to sort of show the beauty of the long-term relationship and how your communication is finally honed between you. You know, I'm curious who you wrote this for, whether you wrote it for the doctors or for the patients? I think in this book, equally both. Uh -huh. Because I think doctors and patients kind of view the conversation as like, oh, bedside manner, the, you know, the, the bonus that some kindly affable doctors have. You know? But the real medicine is the MRI and, and the antibiotic and, and the testing and the referral for endoscopy. But I really want to point out to both doctors and patients that it is the conversation. That is the medicine. It's the diagnosis. It can be the treatment. And not to, that uh, everything else is unimportant, but that needs to get its due, you know, in terms of the time we give in the exam room, in teaching medicine, in reimbursement, right? We don't reimburse mm -hmm. for conversation. If you don't put a, a tube in an orifice, there is no money, you know, coming to you. But if you cut someone open or stick a tube in, you, you get hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but talking doesn't get reimbursed at all. And so... The idea that this is the valuable part of medicine and we need to give it its due, its attention. And as patient, 
you should expect that. If your doctor isn't talking to you, you should say, hey, you know, I need to tell you what's going on. Give me a minute and I'll get you my story. And if you listen, you'll probably make fewer errors. You'll probably fewer misdiagnoses. And I probably won't sue you. <laughs> and if they're not amenable to that, then you need a better doctor. You can't be a good doctor with a lousy bedside manner. I think that doesn't exist any longer. I think you have to have the good communication skills to be a good doctor. Do you get any resistance to this when you tell people about it? I don't think. I think in theory, everyone, every doctor would love to have an hour with every patient to mm. talk ad infinitum. But the system conspires against it. So part of it is recognizing that in our system, how to make do, but, but that I think doctors want to have time to talk. So helping doctors strategize with even small things to make a little bit of protected time to talk. I think people are interested in that. I hope they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if there's someone in this room who really wants to fix a doctor relationship. Is it, is it, is there something a patient alone can do to kind of make the space and shift the dynamic? Right. Again, you can say, you know, hey, for the first minute, could we just talk directly and just hold off writing? You could give your doctor the idea of that one minute. I think that would help. And um, But the other thing is to be realistic. My patients would come in, you know, with a unfurl a sheet of paper with a snap, and there's 50 typewritten <laughs> questions with footnotes. You know, just know that's not realistic because you'll be superficial. So, you know bring in one or two things and save the rest for later because if, if you want that kind of thing, it's just not going to work. Yeah. Is, is there one patient relationship that you've kind of mended that you're especially proud of or that you, that's changed? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I, I had a, a very sort of angry young man, you know, with abdominal pain that no one knew what he was. And he came and he was angry already. And I was having a really bad day. And I was really impatient with him. Every test was fine. I kind of a little bit brushed him off. And, and he didn't come back for the next couple of visits. And when he finally came back, I was just in a better frame. And, I, and he was still really angry. And I realized that I, I could do better. And I finally, you know, I sort of apologized for that I didn't really give him my full attention. And I said, listen, you know, even if we can't figure it out, because maybe we can't but we can still work on it. You know, we can still work on treating it and, you know, we'll still be the team together. And I think after I kind of gave him that, he was just less angry and, and we were able, and we never solved anything, but we were able to sort of continue our relationship and medical care. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take questions from you guys if you've got yeah. them. So um, if, you, if you do, go for it. I would, so, like, oh. I, I would like to know if you talk to your doctor and you... We all know our own bodies. And you explain to him that you know something's going on. And a test comes back that says it could be or could not be. And you want to go further, and he doesn't. What do you do? Do you just give up, go to another doctor, or go for a second opinion? Well, I would first talk. The question was about whether, you know, to go to, if you want to push the evaluation further, to sort of ask your doctor, well, what do you think is going on? You know, so this test wasn't revealing. Is there something else we should be thinking about? And I think the good doctor should ask the question of the patient too. Like, what do you think is going on? And and pursue it more. Not let it just be okay. The test is equivocal. Okay, case closed. I think the story still has to go on if if you're still feeling that something is going on. But if the doctor is not amenable at all, then maybe it's time for another doctor. Hmm. Any more questions? Oh. How do you think uh, various like um, online rating systems for doctors uh, are affecting the, the doctor-patient relationship? Oh, the online rating system. <laughs> you know, every time I look at that, I kind of chuckle because so much of the ratings are about like how long you had to wait in the office, as <laughs> if I had any control. Like, the one thing I cannot control is you know how busy the practice is, um, and I think you know. And, and so practices now try to make patients happier with like you know graham crackers and, and a coffee machine, and I'm thinking you know, make them happy with like an extra nurse on staff. Like that would make the patients, that's really matters. <laughs> or give the doctor longer for the appointments and that matters. Forget all the window dressing. But I, I think it does drive us towards sort of easy fixes. Um, I remember talking with J Jerome Grootman and his wife, Pamela Hersman, is an endocrinologist and she once looked up her ratings and she had a poor rating for inefficiency. And she was really like, I think I'm efficient, but she was really upset. So she dug into it. And the rating came from the fact that she took too long with her patients. 
So I'm thinking, here's a doctor who spends the time she needs with the patient, but it comes out in the metric as inefficient. So oh, I'm not going to take that doctor, but in fact, that doctor could be the one who spends the time. So these rating systems sort of measure what's easy to measure, and really, it's very hard to measure the quality of medicine. So I, I think that it just leads us, to, I mean, it, it's great for Chinese restaurants and maybe great for, you know, <laughs> toasters, but I think it's really not a great system yet for, for doctors. question. <laughs> Uh, I just caught my attention that you mentioned that you gave this placebo to somebody and they were able to sleep the whole night. Now, I've been in a few hospitals and they always walk me at five, six times a night. <laughs> so what kind of great hospital is this where they let you sleep? <laughs> Yeah, we try very hard not to let anyone get a good night's sleep in the hospital. So be so you'll feel so much better when you get home. Um, it's one of the you know um, tortures of modern medical care is thou shalt not sleep while in, in the hospital. <laughs> um, I just wanted to mention. Oh, you question? Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned um, like the ten to fifteen minute window. I'm wondering, do you think there's any chance in the future the system or or uh, can amend to you know, increase reimbursement for longer visits or do something so that there is more time? I mean, that would be my hope. I think we have to, I think as the data begin to accumulate, that having the more in-depth conversation can lead to decreased errors or to cost savings. And I think cost savings might be the one place. Like, if you can show that this conversation saves $20,000 in, in hospitalization costs, I mean, that's what, what you know, people in the decision-making powers, that's what wakes them up. And I think more studies on the cost-effectiveness and the decrease in medical utilization. I mean, I think, I sometimes see like the younger doctors, patients with abdominal pain, they quickly order, you know, scan everything, get a 50 blood test, and, you know, endoscopy, cardiac cath. And, but if you really spent 20 minutes in conversation or an hour in conversation, you might be able to just pick the one test you need. And I think research to show that could start to shift the needle um, you know, I, I was profiling in the book um, a Dutch woman who was the chief listening officer at a hospital, just there to listen. You know, those Dutch are always way ahead of us. <laughs> but, um, but she was a, able to help work um, in the Dutch government. They finally agreed to reimburse discussions for end-of-life care. But that was a legitimate intervention that, besides being the right thing to do, saves a lot of money to actually carve out time and you only can carve out time if someone you know, pays for that time to talk about this. We can't do here because that's a death panel in America. But in Holland, you can legitimately say, let's talk about you know, what you want to talk about with, with your life. And so I think it's going to come down to when we see it being money, uh, sadly. So I want to talk about that a little bit, though, because I feel like I've been covering the story of how if you say sorry after a medical error... Mm -hmm. um, it costs less for the hospital for like 20 years. I still remember when this study came out from a VA system in Lexington, is it Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah. yeah. And they found that if you apologize and yeah. you're uh, open, and open, all those, yeah, that you, it's better for the hospital. Yeah. And it is, it is incentivized basically, but it still doesn't feel like it's caught on. No, because if you, doctors fear they'll, they'll be open themselves up to a lawsuit if you acknowledge that you made an error. But, you know, even in studies about whether you would change doctors, patients are much more likely to keep their doctor if they acknowledge the error than if they don't say anything at all because they, they think, oh, I can trust this doctor. And I think the cost savings in malpractice are huge because why do most people sue? It's not for a medical error. It's for poor communication, almost always. They huh. weren't told what was going on. They were misled. They couldn't get information. And, and if you look at, this, at most suits, they often boil down to communication, probably in, in at least 60% of them. And so... You're right, that alone could, could save a lot. But, you know, to connect those two dots is, is, very, is very hard. Well, how hard is it to standardize this? Because everyone's always going to be different from each other. Some people are going to be great communicators. Right. Some people aren't. You know, I mean, how, how difficult is that? Well, one thing is, who do we select to become doctors? I think in the past, we selected those who got the best MCAT scores. And so we got very smart people, but not always, you know, very communicative people. I mean, I think one salutary change in medicine is that because now that medicine is sort of less lucrative um, and less prestigious, that those folks who just wanted money, they, they went to Wall Street a long time ago. <laughs> so those who come to medical school now, it is rarely the, you know, the one who's going to be that cardiologist you know, in Boca Raton kind of goal to you know, please their Jewish grandmother. And I think people really, the students I see, you know, by and large, really want to be there to help people. So I think we're already selecting better people. 
And the trick is not necessarily that we have to imbue them with the skills, but protect them from not being stamped out. Because mm-hmm. I think they come in with their hearts and minds in the right place, the desire to spend hours with patient, empathetic, um, you know, really good listeners. And then we consistently just stamp it out. So by the time they finish medical training, they can't put a noun and verb together in one <laughs> sentence. You know, so I think it's kind of protecting them from, from being destroyed by our, our training uh, would, would be the key. Any other so questions? Was a question yeah. here? So um, just kind of in light of those shorter visits that we were discussing earlier, physicians and providers will mm-hmm. train for coming in for a patient. You know, you'll review the mm-hmm. problem list. You'll look at relevant notes and histories. Is there anything that a patient should do to kind of mm-hmm. prepare for their visit to maximize the fact that that time is shorter than I think patients would also hope? Well, this chief listening officer, she's since retired from that job. And what she does now is she's a consultant to patients to help create their story. Huh. How to make, and she works specifically with, with patients with complicated illnesses, how to get a complex story into a three-minute narrative. How to hone it, what's important, what's not. And not every patient knows what's necessary to repeat and what, you know. Some patients say, oh, it's all on the chart, which, of course, is very hard for me to pull out. And some patients will give you everything down to their last bunion. And so having, you know, a patient help create the narrative of what's critically important, what can wait, and so taking some time to think about that. What does a doctor need to know? And maybe you need some help with that or maybe just trying to prioritize, but thinking in advance of what you want to say and what you want to get out, and then to be realistic with, like, what are the two or three things you want to get out and not the 50 things? Hmm. Um, I was thinking um, after this lady said about knowing your own body and and thinking there's something wrong and having a doctor um, completely... Blow you up. (laughs) Right. I mean, my mother... um, She's gone two years now, but I was her primary caregiver and even when she was in the nursing home, and I found that a lot of times I would know so- something was wrong with her and it was poo-pooed, poo-pooed. Mm. Do you think that's, a, that's the doctor's ego or they went to school and they know it and you, and you don't know it because you're just a person? <laughs> I, I think those are all elements of it. I think more it's the... I mean, how many things occur during a day in the hospital. I mean, hundreds of thousands of things. So that's just one more, it's a thousand and one thing that you know is cu- coming in. So part of it is, is stimulus overload and data overload and doctors are constantly trying to hone the, the priority list to, to do. And so, um, because lots of times patients will, will have 500 things that may be not relevant to that, that they wanna throw into the mix too. And so they're constantly trying to um, prioritize and, and scale back and in that process often miss the very important things that the patients do know. But again, I think giving the even two minutes to say, you know, well, what do you think is going on to the caregiver or the, the person? Because you might get the clue. And, and what's interesting is the medical student, who's often the one person who sits for the hour, is often the person who finds that thing because they've sat and chatted for the hour. And then that's when the thing comes up or hmm. the niece says, oh, by the way. Um, and I've seen over and over again that the medical student pulls it out of the hat because they spent the hour talking. And so... Again, I think you can ask for your doctor's attention. You can even say, listen, I have one other thing to add. I think we're afraid of the Pandora's box. Okay, I'm here. Everything, including my Aunt Millie's, you know, hiatal hernia, to really, you know, and let them know I'm going to tell you two things that I think are really important, or I'm going to write them down. And, can, you know, can we talk tomorrow when you've had a chance to look at that and not like grab you in the hallway and say, oh, I've got 16 things to tell you? Yeah. Um. I have another question about the patient relationship. You talked about the, di- the diabetic who came in and was having trouble. I think a lot of people, I would say myself included, I have a great doctor, I love him, but maybe for 15 years I've been seeing him and he always says I have to work on certain things. And only this year did I finally say to him, you know, that's really nice that you say that, but I find that really hard to do. <laughs> and I'm wondering how um, I could have gotten there a little faster with him because I feel like as a patient, I sort of feel like, okay, well that's, what I need to do, but in my head, I'm like, this seems like not a realistic goal. Yeah, it's funny. I've, from the research that I've been reading about, I've actually changed what I ask patients now. I used to give them the same harangue about, you know, their cholesterol and their weight and their exercise and their five servings of fruits and vegetables. And they, 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 they have it memorized already. <laughs> and so I'll now say something like, you know, what's the hardest part for you about taking care of your hypertension, diabetes, congestive heart failure? Because then... I often find out, like for them, it might be the cost of medication, the pain of the injection, the embarrassment of this, or their family pressure on that, or 
things I didn't know about or I can't tell them at work that I, and they think I'm doing drugs if I have a syringe. Mm. So I, I try to ask more. And so hopefully your doctor could say, you know, or what's the most challenging part about getting a handle on whatever it is. And then if they're they don't not able to, then you might say, you know, listen, you tell me every year to eat, you know, beans every day, and I just, it's not going to happen, you know. Can we brainstorm on something else? Um, I was thinking about the limitations of time, and one thing I've noticed is that, a, you know, a nurse will come in before the physician steps into the room, and typically I find it's the nurse who spends the most time in front of a computer screen taking in um, certain data, but I was wondering what's the conversation between the nurse or physician's assistant before the physician comes into the room? Is that is there an opportunity there to sort of expand the conversation? I think we are kind of moving toward team-based approach. I think in the old days, the doctor did everything, and, and it's not possible now. And so I think as Tracy and David figured out that it, it takes a couple of chefs in there, the nutritionist, the social worker, the nurse, you know, the podiatrist to work together. And ideally, you have time for that. And I think often we don't actually give the time. Like the nurse may come in, the doctor may come in later, but there isn't time allotted for the nurse and doctor to talk unless they're supposed to create it out of thin air, which is usually the expectation. Just create the time, which of course that doesn't work. So I think we have to acknowledge that their conversation, you know, is part of it too. And, you know, with my medical assistant, you know, he'll often tip me off on oh, this patient, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, it's very helpful, but we don't have dedicated time because there is no time, right? There's, the, you know, time I think is the, the resource that we have the, the least of. Um, you talked a bit about um, educate, how it's difficult to educate medical students to communicate. Um, are you aware of any programs or medical schools or efforts to like change that or that have been successful in, in doing some of that? Well, I'm definitely aware of programs that are starting to, to do more innovative and creative things. How we define success is very hard. You know, because we can't give them a multiple choice test, so how do we measure that? And, and partly they say if it's not measurable, then we can't do it because real estate in you know, medical teaching time is, is a hot commodity, right? If you want to put a course of communication, then, then is pathology going to back down, biochemistry, you know, orthopedics? Who's going to give up the space? So the big turf battles. So we kind of have to go on faith that this is important. So some of the things I, I, I saw, working more, I think, with standardized patients where you have an actor who can then present a clinical situation and then 50 medical students can interview the same kind of patient you know, over and over again, and then you can get some feedback. You know, videotaping yourself with a patient. I was, the first time I saw myself, how I spoke with a patient, <laughs> it was so eye-opening. Like, I didn't realize that I talk with my hands incessantly. My patient's supposed to think I have a tick, you know, I'm always gesticulating. <laughs> I also realized that when I'm, when I stop and think, I close my eyes. And patients must think I'm falling asleep on them or I didn't have enough caffeine. And I had no idea until I saw myself how I interact. So that's really helpful. But again, that takes time to sit and do that and evaluate that. Um, there's one course I, I, I was at McGill um, where they had medical students listen to music and they had them uh, listen to, I believe it was the, uh, uh, one of the Schubert impromptus played by three different pianists. Hmm. And you can see how the same music can sound so different. That the, the idea of the same story can sound so different. And, and just sort of training the ear a little bit you know, for that. In fact, I had my cello lesson today um, between clinic and here. And my teacher actually was giving me a, a big earful about being out of tune. You know? um, and he said, remember when we first started 10 years ago? And he doesn't know that he's in the book. I, I, he'll get to it when he eventually reads it. About <laughs> your, your, the first thing he said to me is, when he said to me, what's the most important, um, which hand of the, of the cello is the most important, like the bow hand or the, or the, um, the hand that's in the finger? I'm like, uh-huh. Trick question, right? Is it the bow? I'm like, oh, it's both. And he's like, oh, it's neither. It's your ear. That's <laughs> the most important. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I was set up for that. But the idea, like on a piano, right? An F sharp is an F sharp. It's always there. But in a stringed instrument, you have to find it. And how do you find it? It's your ear. It's not your fingers. Your ear tells you when you've hit it. And you have to really train your ear to listen for that. And so, and so we had that conversation today when I was doing this Bach, just not in tune enough. And I think with our patients, we have to really train our students to listen, to squint when you listen, in essence. And that because things will be there hidden, and that really take, takes a lot, of, uh, a lot of time. The other thing this program did is they recorded a patient who had depression um, before and after treatment, have the students listen, and not just to the, what they said, but to like a, um, a visual representation of, of their voice. 
And they could see that when they were depressed, like the volume was very small, the variation was very tiny. When they were treated, they had a more normal variation in speaking. That if you just listen, you can hear the effects of treatment based on the way they're speaking. And, and those sort of clinical clues, I think we look at very wise caregivers, they pick up on these things. And, and you know, to show a student to pick out, say, you know, when I spoke with this patient, here's what I picked up on. Again, labor-intensive work, but I think, you know, that's how we best help our patients. Um, one more question? Actually, I just wanted to say, I, I didn't get a chance to mention the Bellevue Literary Review. So we published mm -hmm. from Bellevue a literary magazine about health and healing, kind of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction about health and healing. And I put some um, bookmarks up there. I also put up a mailing list if anyone's interested in you know, hearing about medical humanities or communication stuff. We send out an occasional newsletter. And maybe you have some things to say about Only Human? Yes. Um, you should all download the podcast, mm -hmm. um, onlyhuman.org. But I mostly just want to thank you so much for doing this. I feel like it's really rare to get this look inside a doctor's brain. Um, and you're so generous with your insights about what it's like to be on the other side of the exam room. So um, the book is called What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, and it's truly wonderful. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you, thank you Daniel. Thank you, Aldrey. and I'll be happy to uh, answer any questions up at the table afterward. Great. Thank you so much thank for coming, you. guys. Okay, so that's the show. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to our friends at WNYC for recording that. Dr. Ofri's book is, again, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. You can get it wherever you buy books. And again, more importantly, you can get it at the New York Public Library in hard copy and electronic version through our app, Simply E. And Mary Harris, her show is called Only Human. It's a WNYC podcast. On next week's show, Women and Girls' Lives Matter at the Schomburg Center.